Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R on this fine Sunday morning. Hopefully, you're getting a bit of sun out there because uh, there's not much left for the year, I'm afraid. We're heading into winter. Someone who knows a lot about weather, Dr. Linden, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a glorious day it is. I walked most of the way here this morning and it was just lovely. I was the person walking down Blythe Street dancing a little bit as I walked. It's, it's a glorious autumnal day. <laughs> I was going to say, when, when you say walk most of the way here, I know, I know where you live. and It's a little <laughs> bit further afield than wandering down Blythe Street. Good on you. Yeah, well, it was a mixture. I caught yeah, the tram and then I, I walked because yeah. I missed the bus. But, yeah. you know, I'm here and I'm very happy to be yeah, here. That's right. That's all good. And on the line from uh, Texas. We've got Gracie. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Good afternoon, rather. It's about 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. for me here, so the sun is set. Oh, it's getting later now because our daylight savings stuff is, you know, at least, I mean, the good thing with daylight savings is at least, you know, that sort of damage to paint on the houses from all the extra sunlight is going away, which is very important. You know, we don't want that happening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, and you well, Gracie? You're not, uh, you haven't been stricken down by any unknown viruses? Yes. No, no, I have managed to avoid COVID this entire time. So is my husband. So I'm actually wondering if we were just asymptomatic and mm. potentially had it at some point and we just didn't know it. Mm. So right. what about your family? Yeah, we're good. One of my kids got it, uh, of course, during the great school spreading experiment of uh, term one that we had here in Melbourne. But uh, the other one seems to have snuck through. But then again, he only just finished on Friday. So you never know. He could be harboring... Yeah. You know, all sorts of things in that little body. You know, kids bring home all sorts of crap. And this was well pre-COVID. Every parent knows that they get infected with all sorts of crap. They bring it home. doesn't seem to infect them much at all. They give it to their parents and you end up with Ebola. Yeah. No, I thought this was just a childcare thing. You're telling <laughs> no. me this as a parent of a toddler. I thought that uh, look out. once they got to school, it was all, it was everything was okay, right? Yep. Right? Look out, Linda. Right? Look out. You'll, you'll hear, the, you'll hear the, the famous word at some stage. You'll get a school alert and it has the word gastro in it and oh, you, just, no. you just hide. You Thinking just hide. of anybody who's dealing with that on the first weekend of the school holidays. Yeah, maybe. actually, I know a couple. So to those people, and if you're one of them, sorry to hear that. Hope you get through. Um, apparently, we heard on radiotherapy earlier that coffee is, once again, Good for you. Yes. Um, that will probably be true for another three months until another study comes out saying it's not. But for this point in time, it is good for you. So, you know, chow down. We're going to get straight into some news. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about autism and uh, an amazing thing that's happening out at La Trobe University. And we'll also be speaking to a guest all the way from Perth about satellites and satellite data in our space industry, which will be cool. But we'll start off with some news. Dr. Lyndon, what do you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, I just wanted to touch briefly on the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report that was released this week. The third of a trilogy. Uh, this is the sixth assessment report, right? And we, we've spoken about the others before. Yeah. So the first one that was released last year, talking about the physical science behind what's happening, what happened in the past, what's likely to happen in the future based on climate models, thinking about the atmosphere in the ocean. The second report was released a couple of months ago, and that was about impacts and vulnerability a- across mm. the planet to how, you know, to all of the bad things that are happening. And then this third report, which... You know, as a climate scientist, it's the one I 
probably pay the least attention to, but actually now, as a citizen of the world, it's the one that we probably should be listening to the most because this one is about mitigation. It's about how we're actually going to reduce the worst impacts and how how we could possibly limit the warming that we are seeing in the world to 1.5 or 2 degrees, these limits that were kind of agreed upon in mm. Paris back in whenever it was, 2015 Is this a, a deja vu moment? Oh, yeah, you know what? It is a bit and yeah. it's a bit... Um, as I was just saying to you before off air, it's, it's bloody depressing reading these mm. reports. This one is the smallest, 2,900 pages um, of the three. I hope there's a short version. <laughs> there is a short. There's a, there's a headline statement Executive document. Executive summary. Yeah. And then there's a summary for policymakers. And the summary for policymakers, just like with the other two, um, two reports, that go, is gone through line by line by scientists and government representatives. Mm. So it was the longest session of that ever. It was about 150 hours wow. that all these experts kind of poured through and made sure they were happy with every sentence. So it's quite it's quite depressing, but it's also really empowering and, and motivating. And I'm not going to go through it all now. I haven't, not all 2,900 pages? No, yeah. no, not this time. Maybe we can do that next time. But there were three key points that I wanted to get across. So the first point that really stuck with me was that this report is saying that all of the future the futures that they imagined, the future stories that you can mm-hmm. think about for all the – they looked at over 3,000, I think, future – paths that we could follow, all of the ones that reduced warming to 1.5 degrees or around that with limited kind of overshoot and then having to suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere, all of them included strong action on climate at a global level in the next five years. Right. So it was... So um, no more of this 10-year by 2040 business. It's sort of like... And if anybody was trying to make some kind of decision about how the next three years are going to go... Now you've is got the, like two weeks. You've, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. You've probably yeah. got until the 21st of May to really make a decision about that because yeah. the next three years up to 2025, that's when really strong um, climate policies are implemented mm. in all of the futures that, that have a pretty good outcome. Yeah. The second thing is that for the first time, the report includes a chapter on um, demand and on personal choice, right? They involved a lot of uh, social science and a lot of uh, motivational studies about how people make choices. And the report suggests that, you know, decisions that people make and actions that people take and have a really strong impact in helping to reduce demand on fossil fuel extensive things um, and food was a really big one. So Mm. choices we make about food, choices we make about travel, choices we make about, you know, our clothes and our buildings and all of those things, this can actually have a big impact. Obviously, large-scale change is also required. You know, local, state, federal, international policies need to support that. But, you know, individual actions can can have an impact. I think Dr Jim was talking about this a few weeks back and it was something like, 20 or 25% of the overall effort actually does come from, from us as individuals. Yeah. So so the idea of, oh, it's too big for me, I can't, you know, it's going to be your government. Well, actually, you're about a quarter of the solution. Yeah. So, you know, those things that we, we talk about are actually valuable. Don't think of it as, I'm 2%. If they don't do the other 98, what's the point of my yeah. two? No. It's like, actually, you're, you're the equivalent of a pretty large country. You know, well, that, that's it. Individuals, particularly yeah. us in Australia. You yeah. know, we we are big emitters, one of the biggest per yeah, capita. We're not good. We're not we're not great. And you know, this report, as, as well as all the other reports, saying that you know, developing countries are going to suffer the most and have the least wiggle room in terms of how we mm. can address this. So um, that was quite that was quite motivating for me. And the third thing that I wanted to say was just this quote, which came from the UN Secretary General when the report was released. I think it's you know, you think of UN representatives as being quite stale and quite. 
formal and um, professional, I suppose. But this, this quote from Antonio Guterres, climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Oh, my job. How's that? <laughs> I like you know? it. Well, I think, too, like, I mean, it's, it's kind of an out-of-date scenario now, you know, climate radicals and protests. It's sort of like, um, so who, like, the entire scientific community? <laughs> exactly. is, that, is that what you're All referring to? All school children, yeah, um, you know, most retirees. Like, you know, I, I think it's it's one of those things where that, that mindset of what that looks like really yeah. needs to shift. And we, we this is where the communication element is really important, that we have to start talking about that. This is not you know, a few people, this mm. is society yeah. generally yeah. No. wants this resolved. That's it. And I think, you know, you know, we're about to hit a, you know, I think the federal election has just been called here in, was it 21st of May or something? So. Yeah. Uh, I've got to check my calendar to make sure I'm free. <laughs> Should be. Um, but, uh, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, see how people vote. That's um, right. And, you know, some of the major parties are certainly not putting forward ideas that, that, say to you, hey, I'm nailing this thing up big time and it's going to be my top priority, you know, yeah. like it should have been for 20 years, I frankly. I know. This, this report is saying this is absolutely Ugh. the time. We have no time to waste. There are so many opportunities to be harnessed by, yeah. you know, transitioning to different ways to transport and store energy, to different types of renewable energy. All kinds of sectors need yeah. to change the way that they are behaving and there's lots of opportunity there that we could grab as a country. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, this, this report... While it's hard to take on another huge tome of uh, mm. scary literature, um, and we could have a chat another day about the communication of the IPCC within itself, but for <laughs> me, you know, yeah. I'm rarely, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to keep reading this one when I get home tonight yeah. to see what else I can get motivated about. But I just wanted to, to share those three tips today. No, it's good. It, it's good stuff. And I love the mic drop from the uh, Yeah, UN. I know. Yeah. Well, you know, the UN's got some uh, big things on its hands at the moment, you yeah, know, which, you know, could be a bit more forceful on personally but uh i think uh, this is one where you know really they need to they need to push a lot harder so gracie uh, i know you're a day behind us but what's news over there in the united states yes yeah, so actually this is a study that was done out of china and uh this was published open access in nature two weeks ago this is one of my new favorite studies and this is not even in my field so i'm really excited to tell you about it so basically there's a nature preserve in china that thought to themselves how can we better track the animals that are in this nature preserve and so of course they thought leeches because leeches. why not right yeah, i thought leeches. you were going to say yeah. uh, drones <laughs> yeah that would actually be a great alternative but let me tell you why they chose leeches so actually uh, a little bit more about the study so over 160 park rangers um, basically went around and collected tens of thousands of leeches by hand and put them into little tubes. So they did this for three months. They had over 30,000 leeches. Um, and also, I didn't know this, leeches will actually suck blood from any animal. So birds, reptiles, mammals, whatever. I always kind of pictured mammals in my head. Mm, okay. um, but I didn't, I didn't know. They're not very picky, apparently. And so researchers wanted to know if they could use the DNA from the blood the leeches feasted on to track which animal species were in certain areas of the nature preserve and where their kind of area tended to be. Um, and they were able to track 86 different species. Um, so even humans, frogs bears, cattle, sheep, goats, pretty much anything that was in this preserve. 
I love this. So this could, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So they could see where the animals preferred to live and travel in the preserve. Um, and most species, they said, should be able to live across all parts of the preserve. But they found actually indications of kind of this contrast of where the animals lived versus where the humans were. And so that indicated that human interaction may actually be driving some animals away from certain areas of the preserve. That's interesting. Where the traffic is heaviest. Yeah, isn't it? And you can so imagine- compared with. Yeah, I was going to say, you can imagine those performance yeah. reviews where they're sitting there going, look, Bob, you told us that you weren't going near the uh, pandas, but the leeches are telling us a very different story, fella. Yes, exactly. There are no secrets. Yeah. <laughs> and so... And so actually this, this leeches method that they came up with, this is the first time that's ever been used for this particular purpose. And this way of surveying the animals is actually way more cost effective than using things that they typically use like cameras mm. or electronic tags um, because it doesn't require as much cost and as much expertise. Um, so the researchers are looking into potentially using other blood-sucking things like mosquitoes um, to see if, if they offer good methods of animal tracking too, which wow. is really cool. It's amazing stuff. See, whenever I hear the word leeches, I kind of I freak out a little bit because of my childhood trauma around leeches from the film African Queen. You know, there was a leech moment there, which wasn't pleasant, and I still remember <laughs> that. And as a child, it really freaked me out. And so whenever I've gone anywhere in a waterway, I'm most very cautious of leeches. I hate I hate leeches, but these leeches sound like good leeches. These they sound like, yeah. Yes, I have to say I've never interacted with leeches, but I've had enough ticks living here in Texas oh. that I can imagine that that would also be even more terrifying than finding a tick on yourself. So yeah, they kind of you know because they kind of pulsate, don't they? They do, and if you get if you take them off you in the wrong way, the yeah. blood can be there's lots there's lots of blood. You leave the head in, and all, yeah, that oh can man, get I mean ticks ticks are the same, but leeches are bigger and slimy. How do, how do you remove it? Is it just salt? Chuck some salt uh, on and, or the, a match or a match? match? I think yeah, unless unless the tick is in. A sensitive area, <laughs> which is the which is the uh, memory I have of ticks. Not not like- my sensitive area, it's other one else's, but it's quite a scarring memory. So good to see that ticks are doing some good things <laughs> away from me. Leeches, leeches, and ticks. Yeah. No ticks and do ticks. bad things. Ticks too. do bad things too. Well, that's a, that's fascinating. Uh, thank you for that, Gracie. Will there be a widespread distribution now of leeches to other sites to you know do the monitoring? I, I think, um, yeah, it sounds like we'll a, see. a we'll process. See. Yeah, yes. sounds like a process. Maybe in China. Yeah. Maybe in China. Thank you, Gracie. Well, we're going to talk to you again a little bit later. You're going to be talking to us about some other interesting stuff later in the show, but we're going to love you and leave you for the time being as we get our other guest on the line. So uh, hang in there on this call, and we'll come back to you a little bit later. Thank you. All righty. Folks, uh, that's it for news for us. Uh, we're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be speaking to Jasmine Muir, Dr. Jasmine Muir, from uh, the Earth Observation Technical – she's the Earth Observation Technical Lead at Frontier Sci, and uh, doing some really interesting stuff with satellites. So, Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with me now is Dr. Jasmine Muir. Now, Jasmine is the Earth Observation Technical Lead at Frontier Sci and the AcroWatch Capability Demonstrator Lead at SmartSat CRC. Good morning, Jasmine. Did I get it all right? You did. Good morning, Shane. It's great to be here today with you. Thanks so much for coming online, especially because you're in Perth. So what's it, uh, 9 o'clock, 8.30, something a bit earlier? That's right. It's only just past nine in the morning. <laughs> on, a, on a Sunday morning. Sorry about that. Um, now, you're working in this area, which I think 
it's interesting, you know, often people talk about it's all exploding in Australia, it's amazing, it's all staying, but, but you know, we've been doing this stuff for a while. It's only recently that it's had a lot more media attention. How, how much engagement does Australia have with space and with the space industry? Can you give us a, just a bit of an overview of, you know, how we sit? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you're exactly right. We have been doing a lot of this for quite a number of years now. Um, we have a really good history in Australia of working in what I'm going to call the analytics space. So we've been using uh, Earth observation satellite images. So that's images taken from space on satellites for many years now. We've got a really good global rep reputation working in that area as well and being able to analyse that type of data. And um, But I think it's it's really probably more the, the building of satellites and mm. the development of companies and launch capabilities in Australia too that's really taken off in the past few years. And um, you, uh, your viewers have probably seen recent announcements um, as well coming through from the federal budget announcements in that regard as well so there's really quite a lot of investment going on in australia at the moment in the space industry how much has the shift from you know what i would loosely refer to as big r satellites to cubesats changed the way we're going about this so are we more able to be engaged now that you know satellites are just becoming smaller and more affordable that's exactly right it's really low at the entry barriers so um what used to be very, very expensive, very large satellites, maybe think the size of a bus that mm. were being launched. Um, so they're quite big, take a lot of investment and time to build, whereas the CubeSats, they're much more agile. So they're able to be built quickly. You can iterate on them. You can add new technologies to them to test them, and then you can find out what works and you're able to deploy them very quickly. Yeah, I suppose, too, it also changes the range of rockets that we can use to get these things up there. Because in the you know, in the good old days, if you, you know, didn't have a seat on the space shuttle, you know, a lot of satellites just we didn't have the capacity to put them into orbit, did we? Whereas now, you know, all sorts of nations are, are launching relatively small rockets to, to deliver large numbers of CubeSats in one go. Yeah, that's right. And I think the rise of commercial space launch as well. Mm. So um, most people have probably heard of SpaceX and they've been launching uh, a lot of the different CubeSats. So having that ability to use commercial providers provides a lot more capacity to launch these uh, CubeSats in the first place as well. Yeah, interesting. Now, let's talk about Australia in terms of industry. What sort of industries use satellite data um, or own satellites or operate satellites or rent time off satellites? I'm not sure exactly how it all works. I mean, what, what are we seeing at the moment in terms of use in Australia? Mostly, I think um, Australia is buying satellite imagery from commercial providers. There's also a lot of people using um, what I'm going to call open source data that's provided mm -hmm. by international space agencies. So that would be groups like NASA or the USGS or the European Space Agency. So that data is freely available for people to use and to deploy. But in terms of the industries using it, uh, we're seeing quite a range. So it's really widely used in the agriculture industry these days. So that's for looking at how, how crops are growing, what the yield might be. Um, there's also a lot of potential to use it in the insurance and finance industries as well. So things like assessing damage that might have occurred from some of the natural disasters we've been seeing recently. Mm. And there's been some really good stories around uh, looking at the flooding extents and, and also assessing the damage from the bushfires that happened over the summer periods. Yeah, interesting. And, and what sort of data are we talking about? Because I, I suppose a lot of people have the image of this all being you know, visual visual data you know images that are visual but is there a lot more than that i assume there's infrared there's all sorts of things that that are collected that we also utilize 
Yeah, that's right. So most people will assume that it's just a visual, visual image similar to what you might see in a photograph, but we're actually collecting data that is uh, beyond the visible spectrum as well. So that's um, the ability to collect light waves that humans can't see, and that provides a lot more information. So we can use that to determine things that you wouldn't be able to just with the, with the naked eye, say. Yeah. Jasmine, tell us about your day. Like, what, what sort of work are you doing in space? Because you, you, you have several roles. Um, what, what does your day or week look like in terms of, you know, engaging with industry over satellite data and so forth? It's actually really broad at the moment. So it can be anything on the given day from um, this week. I'll, I'll give an example was working with some government clients to look at how they might map all of the vegetation across Western Australia. Hmm. Um, another aspect of it is looking at what are the technology gaps that we need to fill for a satellite mission so that's the aquawatch satellite mission and looking at how we might both use the data that could be developed from that mission but also what's the technical the hardware the software things that we need to develop to make that mission succeed so that's part of my crc role um, other aspects um i think just general advising so some of the methods and the um the analysis techniques that you might use to look at satellite imagery. So that's things like machine learning, AI, all of those um, those buzzwords that we hear, they've yeah. really come to the forefront yeah. in the past few years. Interesting stuff. Now I'm going to hand you over to a couple of questions from my colleague, Lyndon, who's uh, in the studio with me. And Lyndon doesn't know this, but I actually, uh, I did my, um, when I was a student at high school, I did a, a placement, a work experience placement at the Bureau of Meteorology when it was back in Latrobe Street, I want to say, and they had nothing for me to do, so they just launched, apparently, I think it was called Geosat 2 or something back then in the 80s, and they, the data was coming in, and they said, just look at this data, it's amazing, it's coming from a satellite. And I was like, okay, this was interesting for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and that, that's the end of it, Lyndon. Did you know I also did... Oh, hang on, different microphone, go for it. Did you know I also did my work experience at the Bureau of Meteorology on Lonsdale Street? Maybe a little bit later than you, bit later. Dr. Shane. I was looking <laughs> yeah. at uh, different types of weather maps. But yeah, Jasmine, so I, I work in the climate science space, but I'm really interested in this new um, AquaWatch satellite mission you're talking about, which, as I understand it, is about water quality monitoring. How can satellites help us with that? Hi, Linda. Nice to meet you. Um, that's exactly right. It's talking about or looking to measure water quality across Australia. Um, so it's coming back to that information that we can't see with the with the naked eye. So it's the ability to look into that uh, light spectrum and be able to do things like um, detect when there's harmful algae blooms. Uh, looking at the sediment that might be in the water, looking at the light attenuation, and all of that affects both the quality and the, the health of the ecosystems as well. So with AquaWatch, what we're looking to do is to be able to measure water quality in a way that hasn't been done before because the while there's existing satellites that can be used to measure some parts of water quality, they can't actually um, measure some aspects which are really important for affecting that quality. And as um, we see things like changes in climate patterns, that's actually going to become more and more important for countries like Australia, where we have uh, limited water resources, but also globally on a global scale as well yeah jasmine in terms of the um you know we talked about satellites a lot but in terms of the launch capabilities are we going to be launching some of these things you know more commonly from australia now is that are we are we getting to that future 
Yeah, that's certainly the plan. And um, the Australian Space Agency is, is really coordinating, I guess, on a national level, that type of effort. But we've seen a number of companies. Um, there's Equatorial Launch, there's Gilmore Space um, based out of Queensland, and they're developing their own uh, rockets and ability to launch from Australia. There's also Southern Launch, which is uh, in South Australia, and there's a big, um, uh, I guess, push for Australia to be able to launch our own rockets and, and from those to be able to launch our own satellites. Yeah, I, I assume there are advantages in having a southern hemisphere launch site relative to the rest of the world, which is you know predominantly in the, the northern hemisphere. How many other southern hemisphere launch sites are there? Um, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I don't believe there's many. Not we many. may be the only one. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the benefits with Australia, too, is we can do both um, what I'm going to call a more traditional launch, but we can do an equatorial launch. So yeah. that means most satellites operate uh, north to south, so they go around the poles. You can also do an equatorial launch, which will go around the, the equator, essentially. Mm. Um, yeah, oh, we've got, so we we got it all covered. We can we can do the whole lot. Well, we look, it's it's great to hear that this stuff is going on. I know the industry is you know is changing a lot with the announcement of us having a space agency as well, which I think we were. I don't want to say second last in the OECD, but that could be the case. I'm not sure, but we got there eventually, which is nice. Jasmine, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Um, good luck with this ongoing work. I think it's really fascinating that you know we have companies now doing this and. Companies helping to process the data and, and I guess you guys in particular are connecting other industries up to this industry, which is a really big deal. Just just before I let you go, though, is it getting crowded up there? It is. I think um, in the next few years, it's going to get even more crowded. But um, it, it's really great to see so much enthusiasm around the industry. And um, it's really also just great to see the data being used. And I think, um, as you said, connecting people is one of the things that we do at Frontier SI. So that's a really good thing Excellent. to be part of. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, thanks so much, Jasmine. Great to talk to you, folks. That was Dr. Jasmine Muir. Triple R. We have our second live guest in the studio for two and a half years. It's been a tough run. I'm so honoured to be in the room. So excited. Indeed. In the studio with us now is Professor Cheryl Desanayakaf, who is the Director and Chair of the Olga Tennyson Autism Research Centre in the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University. Cheryl, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you in here. Now, I saw a little piece of news the other day, and I got pretty excited about this, so I quickly uh, sent a text to my old buddy, who's your VC and, and your comms people, and said, we've got to get someone in to talk about this. But you now, you're part of the, the Olga Tennyson Centre, which is named after someone who has just made an extraordinary uh, gift. I, I, my understanding is Olga um, passed away just over a year ago? That's right, in January last year. January last year year but her um in her will she has left an extraordinary legacy for la trobe university in the space of autism so tell us a little about about this gift it's an extraordinary gift as you say shane um we never anticipated um that this generosity that mm. she's shown and i guess also absolute trust in the work we've been doing. Yep. Um, so our research centre was the first research centre in Australia, mm -hmm. which is dedicated to autism. We established in 2008, so we've been going for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And Olga's been terribly generous with us. We wouldn't have the Autism Research Centre if not for her. And when we established the centre, um, we, as I said, did it on her generosity, but we never expected any more generosity right. yeah. and she kept giving us 
um, donations towards our center. So through her life, she contributed $6 million through the center. Which in itself is a huge amount of money for an individual to to provide to a a single university. More than anyone would anticipate. Yep. And... When she died, she left us this bequest of $45 million, and that will really ensure autism research into perpetuity. Yeah. And it will ensure that we can honour Olga's legacy into perpetuity. And I think that's incredibly important to keep her at the centre of what we do. She wanted autistic lives to be better. And she wanted the lives of the families to be better. And she wanted to make a difference. And this was her focus. And so she would tell me all my money's for autism. Mm. But I never realized just how much money she was talking about. And, you know, the autism field has been quite shocked (laughs) and pleased by this incredible generosity. And and did she have a personal or did she have a personal connection to autism? She did have a personal connection, yes. She had a family member and she was the... um, one of a, a member of a parish, uh, St. Michael's in Ashburton, where she worked every day mm. except Sunday. She'd go to Saturday evening mass and she took Sunday off. And she knew everyone in that parish. She'd served for many, many years. So it wasn't just a family connection. Um, being a member of a large parish, she met many people, young and old, who had autistic children, who had autistic grandchildren, and she saw that their lives weren't easy. Mm. And that's where she felt she could make a difference. So I met her in July 2007, and we became firm friends. I wasn't quite prepared for the friendship um, that developed between us, but it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I honestly miss her every day. You know, she was really quite inspirational. Yeah. Now, t- talk us through what's going to happen now with this, you know, this amount of money, because this is not the sort of money people get from the NHNMRC funding agency, you know, or any of these sorts of normal places. And to be fair, you know, autism has has struggled as as an area for research money o- over the years. I mean, it's had some, which is great, but, you know, I would say disproportionately low relative to the impact that this has in our society. So what do you do with, you know, this $45 million hits your bank account? I mean, what... What what happens? We do what Olga wanted us to do, and that is to invest this money into perpetuity. Okay. So it means then that there will always be money for autism research in this country, and that's quite extraordinary. Mm. Uh, I came into the field in 1984, and so it's been a long time, and there's never been a lot of money for autism, for either research or, for that matter, for service. Mm. And it really was in 2007 where uh, things came together. I met Olga Tennyson and she gave us a check which Latrobe matched to establish the first autism research centre in in this country. And we were facing an election, just as we are today. And it was the Rudd 
07 campaign, and of course Kevin Rudd won that election, but both sides, John Howard and Kevin Rudd, committed money for autism and uh, with a focus on service. Mm. So it meant that it was the first time ever that there was money for either autism research and autism service, and we were really able to leverage that. Mm. And now the... In the face of this incredible gift and government also now realizing over these last 14 years the impact that autism can have on lives. I mean, we've just come out of the Senate Select Committee um, on Autism. The report was launched a couple of Fridays ago. Um, They're talking about a national autism plan, which is terrific. So we're in a different space, I think. And we in our research center really want to and have always worked at the nexus of research and practice. So it's about how do we increase the quality of lives of those living with autism. And, and, and with that, I mean, what about within your centre as well? Because I know many, many people living with autism, and, and I think we have to be careful here and say there's quite a range of what that means these days. You know, like the definition of that is very broad now in terms of where you can sit on that spectrum. Do you have a lot of people with autism within your center itself? Is that something you encourage? I mean, that's we do. excellent. We mm. do. It's something I'm actually really proud of. So through the last 14 years, if you slice us at any time like a salami, mm-hmm. <laughs> you would find that 30% of our folk are either autistic, are a parent of someone who's autistic, have a sibling who's autistic. So it's been... Consistent. So autism's never been out there. It's always been in here with us. And mm. that really keeps us honest <laughs> to what yeah. we do and our work. But in the last, I guess, two or three years, we've been promoting a scholarship. We have the chancellor at our university when we opened the center, Dr. Sylvia Walton, was um, over time became our chair of our advisory committee and she gives us a donation her and her husband give us a donation which we use um, as honors scholarships so those scholarships are dedicated for autistic honors students Mm. and the reason we did that is that we want to build the scholarship of autistic researchers so that we can work with them and build them and work alongside them. And, you know, right now we have four autistic PhD students in the center. I'm very proud of that. And two of them were Sylvia Walton honors scholars. So that's something where it's in our strategic plan and we're very committed to growing autistic scholarship. And that wasn't, that honestly was not a reality for me when I came into the field. It wasn't a reality when we opened the centre um, in 2008, but it is an absolute reality now. Yeah, this is extraordinary. I, I mean, one way to think about this is you guys kind of have your own little, you know, medical research future fund. It's just, it's all yours, um, making, you know, making money and that money being able to be used, as you say, in perpetuity every year for, for the area of research it, it was designed for. It, this this must put Latrobe at the absolute sort of you know front front of the line in terms of autism research and capability across Australia. You, you guys must be pretty much 
you know, the best there is with this now, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, as I said earlier, we were the first research centre yep. dedicated to autism in the country, and we've been working very hard to build autistic scholarship and autism scholarship. Mm. So without Olga's donation, for example, we wouldn't have the Australasian Society for Autism Research. Right. Um, so it's we've tried to build scholarship not just within our centre but beyond it in through collaborations, and we will certainly continue to do that. So in terms of investing this money in perpetuity, it means it's not just our generation that will benefit. It's really the future generations. I grew up in autism research and really ran my research on the smell of an oily mm. rag. And even once we established the research centre, while that certainly did have an impact, you know, I would undertake what I called knitting. I was constantly knitting, bringing this grant with this yep. grant to whole people because research is people. Yep, absolutely. Um, the majority, 80% of our funds fund people. people. Yep. And so the fact now that we can hold people and attract more people to and really sort of put our foot on the accelerator now yep. w with these funds is, is you know, what, what we want to do. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's so exciting to hear that, Shell, and um, it's very heartening to hear all of this incredible research happening here in Melbourne as well. I'm interested about um, the the fingers of the research, I suppose, and where it uh, heads out now. You mentioned service before and, and providing, you know, as, as Shane said, if Latrobe is the, the leader, the international leader of autism research, I'm interested about how interested in how the work um, feeds into to areas that are now supporting families um, living with people with autism, people who have autism, and providing, allowing them to live a better life. How does your work go into, you know, curriculum, curriculum planning or NDIS planning or, I don't know, building planning? Is, is there a path for that that can now be strengthened with this extra funding? Absolutely. So what you're really talking about is research to practice mm -hmm. and the knowledge translation. And so that's been very, very important to us. And we've done that in all sorts of ways. Um, so I'll talk about where we are where we've got to over these 14 years and where we want to get to um, now with the reality of this donation. Uh, so the we've had um, four key program areas. We work across a number of uh, projects, but the majority of them fall under four key program areas. And we span the lifespan. So we start in infancy. So we do work in detection and diagnosis. And when I first met Olga, in fact, I told her about a really terrific study we were doing that's had a lot of media attention um, lately. And this is around training uh, service providers to identify signs of autism in infancy. Mm. So that children can be identified earlier, can get an earlier diagnosis, which means that families can bring in supports for that little one much earlier. We also work in the area of early intervention and support. So we have at um, Latrobe the Victorian Autism Specific Early Learning and Care Centre. And so we have little ones come in. We try and bring them in as early as possible, under three ideally, and they get a program of supports 
that means that they're more likely to go out into the community and be with their peers and go to school with their peers and be included in school with their peers. We have a program of research that focuses on vocational and educational participation, um, a very for, since 2015, we've been working with DXC Technology on how best to bring autistic people into the workplace, not just so that they're employed, so that they have careers, that they have sustainable employment. So many autistic people are underemployed. So we really try to embed our research and practice. So at, in our early um, year center, we have a researcher that sits within the service that works with our clinicians and helps clinicians to form their questions. We research that service. Our findings then go back into fostering better practice. And so you have this iterative model, this embedded research model. Another um, key program area we have at La Trobe is around um, well-being, health and well-being, because autism doesn't travel alone. Um, Often it's not the mm. autism that <clears throat> impacts lives. It's all of the other things that travel with autism. So how do we address the difficult sleep issues, the difficult mental health issues that can really limit lives? Yeah. So this is how you sort of take your research, you research these things, you, and you turn it out into practice. So the early identification research, for example, maternal and child health nurses are trained. We have an app that parents can use to identify whether their child might be developing autism. Cheryl, yeah. look, it's amazing stuff. I, I wish we had more time today to talk through this more, but I, I guarantee you we will be having many people from your centre on the show over the coming years, especially of all this extra support you've got. And we had uh, Katie Unwin on uh, just a week or two ago. My memory's so bad, I can't remember whether it was one or two weeks ago. It might have been two weeks ago. Did an amazing job, talked us through some really cool stuff. But once again, congratulations on getting this. Um, this is not um, just a gift. It is a hard-earned uh, donation that you guys obviously, you know, really did the work to to get. And I know these relationships with some of these individuals uh, go over many, many years. Sometimes we hear this, oh, someone just gave you $45 million. You know, It's like I know you worked for, you know, over a decade on getting that, that sort of investment in your work. So congratulations. Good luck with the ongoing um, development of the centre. And we look forward to seeing some amazing things coming out of La Trobe in the area of autism in the coming years thanks so much thank you so much it's it's a real privilege to receive this gift so thank you to talk for talking to me about it you're very welcome folks uh, that was professor cheryl disanayaka and uh, the director and chair of the olga tennyson autism research center center and the recipient of olga tennyson's most amazing gift of 45 million dollars to help with autism research into the future from la trobe university triple r Gracie over there is going to tell us apparently something about aging, which I'm scared about this segment, Gracie. Yes. So aging. Some people think it's a disease in itself that we'll eventually find a cure for. Um, but major organizations like the World Health Organization really don't recognize aging as a disease in itself. Although, obviously, a lot of diseases are associated with aging, right? So mm. things like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Um, today, I'm only going to talk about quote-unquote typical aging, so things that everybody who lives old enough will experience. Um, so I'm not going to talk about any pathologies associated with aging. Okay. So just to give that disclaimer, um, there are a ton of 
theories associated with aging, which I did not know. Um, I'm only going to talk about one, which is my favorite, because it tends to be one of the best indicators of aging so far. Uh, but first, I have to explain the difference between chronological and biological aging. Have you ever heard this difference before? Yes, indeed. I'm hoping my biological aging has nowhere near as advanced uh, years as my chronological aging. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So your chronological age is your actual age in years. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, and then your biological age refers to uh, kind of the accumulation of these epigenetic changes in your body that have been associated with aging. So like you said, ideally, your biological age would be younger than your chronological age. Um, so someone that could be 30 years old chronologically could have either younger or older biological age, age based on factors like how their environment has altered their gene expression. Um, and an example of this is my favorite theory. It's called DNA methylation. So it's basically when a methyl group, which is just a carbon and three hydrogens, is added to a specific part of your DNA so that that part of your DNA is no longer being expressed. And so that tends to accumulate, they found, as people age. And DNA methylation isn't all bad. So this is actually really critical for ensuring certain cells that are very organ-specific are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So your skin cells are not acting like your muscle cells. Right. Um, right? And then also, especially important for females as well, right? Because we have two X chromosomes. So one of those needs to be silenced in every single cell. Otherwise, there's going to be chaos in the cell. Um, so hence why this whole reversing aging problem from this perspective gets really complicated, right? Because we can't reverse DNA methylation completely. Um, and there's really been no scientific test to determine someone's exact age, kind of like how we could look at rings around a tree and know exactly how old it is. But recently, someone named Steve Horvath in 2013 made what's called an epigenetic aging clock. Have you heard of this? No. Interesting. It's really cool. Yeah. So basically, uh, they took a bunch of human samples and they determined 300, over 300 biomarkers or indicators, basically, of DNA methylation that was correlated to aging. And so you can actually take a test. If you just Google search um, like Horvath clock, so H-O-R-V-A-T-H, um, you can actually find a kit that you can order online. So it's either a blood kit or a urine kit, and they're each about $300, that you can take this test, send it back to them, and they will tell you uh, kind of your predicted biological age and any health risk factors you have associated with uh, your DNA methylation, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to know the answer to the age thing. Yeah, well, I'm definitely in that boat as well. Oh, that's not true. I want to know it if it's a certain answer. I don't want to know it yes. if it's the other <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, aging has also obviously been associated with a lot of physical declines, right? And so we could talk about wrinkles or like skin sagging. Um, one thing that was interesting to me that I didn't know that your facial fat in the deeper layers of the skin on your face, um, you actually lose it. As you age, and that's why your skin sags. Hmm. You're losing fat on your face, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Because I feel like, you know, as you age, people tend to make the joke, you know, that you tend to get bigger. You tend to gain weight, gain fat. Um, apparently, you lose it out of your face. So <laughs> so you need to get it back into the face. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly what people do whenever they have facelifts as well. That's, uh, I think, one component of it as well. Um, and another thing I thought was really interesting, too. So we talk about hair turning gray. Um, but we, uh, the, basically the process behind that is melanin. So you're losing melanin, which is the coloring in your hair. 
Um, but for eyes, right, your eye color is also determined by melanin. So why, when we age, do we not, like our eyes don't change color? It's something right. that I've always thought about too, because your hair grays, why don't your eyes turn gray? And I could not find a satisfying answer anywhere um, that can, has researched that. So that's but, really interesting to me. Well, can I just say, in a sense, I'm happy with this because see, my hair fell out, so I wouldn't want my eyes <laughs> falling out. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and then a lot of these kind of changes that we think about, like the skin um, kind of getting less flexible and, the, and uh, like our musculoskeletal decline and atrophy um, and loss in bone mineral density. When do you think, like what age do you think that, that starts to happen? Well, I know with things like bone density, it even changes like for women during pregnancy and so forth and it can bounce back. Like it happens at various times in their life and it can happen very young, right? Yeah, exactly. So for most people on average, it tends to start around their 30s. Mm. Um, even uh, in males who don't kind of have that pregnancy or hormone shift back and forth, that's pretty major. Um, so, so that's really interesting to me as well, that we kind of tend to think of aging as this thing that maybe happens later on down the line. Actually, we're, we're pretty much at our peak right before 30. And I turned 30 later this year, so that's bad news for me, obviously. <laughs> so. Is that why you've researched this, Gracie? You're just, uh, you know, preparing yourself for a really sad 30th party? <laughs> yes, just morbidly obsessed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'm sure you've also heard about uh, antioxidants as well mm. and how those could potentially be used to slow aging. So that was really big research, I guess, two decades ago, and it's still kind of lingering around. But actually, several really large studies and larger views have shown that antioxidants don't actually slow aging as much as was previously thought. But a big thing that does um, or has been proven to show aging is called caloric restriction. Have you heard this term before? Uh, I've uh, been doing the opposite for quite some many years. <laughs> Is that a bad thing? <laughs> Potentially not. Uh, so caloric restriction is actually the reduction of your food intake, but mm. basically not to the point of malnutrition. So you're not fasting and you're not completely cutting calories out of your diet. You're just reducing it. And I found conflicting information online. It tends to be kind of relative to the person. So anywhere between cutting your calories from 20% to 50% daily could be considered caloric restriction. But as you can imagine, human studies have been difficult to do in this because like who wants to volunteer yeah. to be cutting their calories in half <laughs> per day, you know? Yeah, and if it, um, but, I, I want to know how many extra years it gives me too. Because if, yes, exactly. if it's just two, forget it. I'll go out right, earlier it's not worth and, it. and I'll keep the calories. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So in rats, it was actually found to increase their lifespan by up to half. Oh. But in humans, in humans, we haven't been studying it long enough to really see yet, but I'm sure they'll come up with an answer soon. Um, so we'll see if it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It could be worth a half. I'll go half. I might eat a few less chocolates for half. But if you're going to be grumpy for all of that extra time, is it worth it? Yeah. <laughs> 60 extra <laughs> I don't know. My, my brain has, I mean, yeah. the post-COVID chocolate-free life doesn't seem, doesn't, doesn't seem possible at no. all. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, I think, uh, well, you've got to be mindful. I think um, caloric restriction is good for a lot of things. And if there's a bonus, what I want to hear is that, and we've only got 30 seconds to go, but I want to hear someone come out and say, people who eat a lot of fresh pineapples live 20 years longer. Because if that ends up being true, I'm absolutely going to really rake it in because I eat a pineapple a week and I've been doing it since I started the show. That's how I don't lose my voice. 
Really? I've never lost my voice in 30 years of broadcasting. You just eat an entire pineapple before starting the show every Sunday not, morning? Not on Sunday. I eat it through the week. Oh. I eat a pineapple every week, and it's very good for, for keeping your throat nice. Oh. And Did you know that, Gracie? Eat a pineapple a week. No, I didn't know that. That's a great tip. Yep, that can be your next area of research for us when we uh, get you back in a few weeks' time. Pineapples, yes. true or false? Is Dr. Shane wasting his money? Probably. But uh, I really like pineapples, so that's okay. Gracie, thanks so much for telling us about aging. I don't feel as bad as I thought I would after this segment. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, uh, thank you, Gracie, for being on the line all the way from Texas. I know it's getting late there. It's almost 9 o'clock for you, so we'll allow you uh, to enjoy the rest of your Saturday night. Good seeing you again. Yes, thank you. Nice to be on. We'll see you again soon. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.